0: For those of you who are not regularly with us on Sunday evenings, for a couple of years now we've been preaching verse by verse through the book of Proverbs, a grand Old Testament book, and we find ourselves tonight in the midst of a study of Proverbs 13, and I invite you to turn there with me to Proverbs chapter 13. title of these messages in Proverbs 13 is the way to really live The way to really live last time we spoke about the first of four ways that Proverbs 13 tells us the way to really live covering the first six verses and after the introductory first verse which serves more like a title, we saw from verses 2 through 6 that King Solomon speaks to his sons and therefore to us very specifically about the way to really talk and live. That's the first of the four that we want to see from this grand chapter. He is mainly teaching his own sons about the nature of their speech, in verses 2 through 6, and how it affects their living by and for the glory of God. Tonight, we want to move on in Proverbs 13 to discuss even some more ways that we can really live under the authority of these scriptural commands, and I want to talk about the second of those four tonight, specifically from verses 7 to 11. You follow along as I read in the New American Standard Bible. Proverbs 13:7. There is one who pretends to be rich, but has nothing. Another pretends to be poor, but has great wealth. The ransom of a man's life is his wealth, but the poor hears no rebuke. The light of the righteous rejoices, but the lamp of the wicked goes out. Through insolence comes nothing but strife, but wisdom is with those who receive counsel. Wealth obtained by fraud dwindles, but the one who gathers by labor increases it. Just as we found in verses 2 through 6, each of these verses have either an explicit or an implicit reference to how a person handles money. Or, even implicitly, what happens when money is correctly or incorrectly handled, and by whom. For instance, verses 7, 8, and 11 speak about money or spending money explicitly, while verses 9 and 10, by the very nature of being wrapped around verses 7, 8, and 11, define implicitly the ones who are either handling their money well or handling it poorly. Notice verse 7. There is one who pretends to be rich but has nothing. Another pretends to be poor but has great wealth. This is actually a verse that could have three different and three legitimate at that meanings and I want to take some time with it so that what we can do to best understand it and then apply it to our lives very personally. I want to talk about the first way that this particular verse could be understood. And as I said, all three of these could be legitimate renderings of the Hebrew text. First of all, it could be referring to a person who thinks himself rich. You could read it that way in the verse. There is one who thinks himself to be rich, but has nothing. nothing. Another thinks himself to be poor, but has great wealth. The proverb, understood in this way, means that these two kinds of men are presumptuous and deluded about their financial condition. With the first man, the rich man, he presumes himself to be rich, but he in fact is poor. you remember what Jesus said to the church in Laodicea in Revelation 3.17? There he said, "...because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy..." and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and naked and blind. That's, in a sense, what this verse is saying, if it has that meaning attached to it. Someone who thinks of themselves to be rich, but they actually have nothing. They're poor and naked and blind. And with the second man, it could mean that over, even though he thinks himself poor, he is also deceived and does not realize actually how much money he really has. With both, however, they incorrectly presume those things about themselves. They're deceived about their true condition. Understood in this way, then, it's a proverb about those who are financially presumptuous and therefore are deluded. We have seen those kinds of people, haven't we? Some people who think themselves to be rich when in actuality they have very little or nothing. And some people who presume or think themselves to be poor when actually they have a great deal. It would be a wonderful proverb if it meant that, and I think there's a great possibility that it does. But there's another possible meaning here, a second one. It could be referring to those who pretend to be something that they are not. It's not so much a presumption, but a pretending, a pretending. It could mean both of these men are actually pretending to be something that they know they're not. In other words, they are specifically attempting to be deceptive. It's not that they're deluded. It's not that they presume something about themselves that isn't true. It is actually that they pretend something about themselves that they know is not true. The first man pretends that he is rich, maybe because he wants to look good in the eyes of other people. It could be somewhat like Proverbs chapter 12, verse 9. Look at that with me, Proverbs 12, 9. Better is he who is lightly esteemed and has a servant than he who honors himself and lacks bread. That could be like that rich man, right? They pretend that he has, he pretends that he has all kinds of honor, he accords all kinds of honor for himself, but really he has nothing. He even lacks bread. He wants a certain kind of social status in the community. He tries to make it look like he has the financial wherewithal when in actuality he has nothing. Maybe this is what we might see today with someone who tries to live above their financial means charging the credit cards with all kinds of neat toys. Maybe those who live in houses near the rich on their side of town, but will one day come to the realization that he has nothing, even as the creditors come and take away all the goodies. This is a wonderful proverb that really guards us against such thinking. Can you see the wisdom in this proverb? Don't live above your means. Don't live above your means. What about the second man? What might it have reference to for him? Well, he pretends to be poor, but he has great wealth. Maybe he's pretending to be poor because he really doesn't want to give his money away to those who desperately need it. He has the money, but he pretends that he doesn't, so he doesn't have to meet the needs of others around him. You see the flip side of this proverb? Someone who really does have the money, who could supply. It's not like the supposed or pretending rich man who really doesn't have it but pretends that he does. This person really does but pretends that he doesn't. And both of these pretenders, according to verses 5 and 6 of this chapter, are wicked men who act disgustingly and shamefully. And they subvert themselves and those around them, and it is this way because they're wicked sinners. Now that also could be a very legitimate rendering of this proverb, but there's even a third. And maybe this is really getting at the heart of it. Maybe this proverb is really hitting at the issue of the sin of greed. And it's focusing our attention on both angles, those with riches who are greedy and those with poverty who are greedy. Let's say that the first man, the supposed wealthy person, is in fact really wealthy, at least on the outside, as far as the world is concerned, but he's not spiritually rich toward God. Maybe he's pretending to be rich spiritually by giving away a lot of money. He's philanthropic, but his heart isn't right toward God. You may have seen some of those kinds of people. They give all kinds of money away. In fact, some of them give millions away. But really what some of them want is to have a building named after them. They're not spiritually rich toward God. He's giving some of his wealth away, but with the wrong motives, so that he might be noticed by others because of his riches. I want you to see some passages that Jesus Himself teaches in this regard. Look at Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12, and I do want to spend some time with this because this is so powerful. In Luke chapter 12, we read this in verse 13. And this is part and parcel of what this proverb may be hitting at. Someone in the crowd said to Him, Teacher... Tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. Probably a reference to two very greedy members of a family. But Jesus said to him, Man, who appointed me a judge or arbitrator over you? Then he said to them, Beware and be on guard against every form of greed, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. What a statement. Even if you owned a great deal, your life doesn't consist in the possessions that you own. That's not the essence of you. Even if you were a rich man, as a Christian, your life doesn't consist in those things. And he told them a parable, verse 16, saying, The land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? This is a rich man He's very productive, has a lot of money, a lot of produce, a lot of material goods. Then he said, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and all my goods, and I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. In other words, I've worked for it. I've earned it. I deserve it. You deserve a break today. But God said to him, verse 20, You fool! This very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you have prepared? And here's the punchline, verse 21, So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. In other words, like Jesus said in Matthew 6, we might even look at that later, when you give money, don't tell anybody. Don't let the left hand know what the right hand is doing. When you give, give in secret. Because your heavenly Father will know, for He knows what occurs in the secret, the secret places. Be rich toward Him. Give toward Him. Don't store up treasure for yourself and not be rich toward God. Look at Luke chapter 16. This is Jesus teaching and He taught a lot, probably more than any other thing about money, about riches, about finances. Luke 16 verse 14. Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, what a characterization of a group. How would you like it to be said of you, now so and so who was a lover of money, were listening to all these things, including Jesus' teaching about money, and were scoffing at Him. And He said to them, You are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men. You see, this may be hitting right at that proverb again. A person who may indeed be wealthy, or at least someone who is a lover of money, even if he doesn't have as much In the world's sight that would make him rich, or maybe he is, but God knows your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. And then he even gives another sort of parable, verse 19 of this same chapter. Now there was a rich man. And he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. This guy was rich. You could tell it by his clothes. He had the clothes of royalty. And there was also a poor man. See all the contrasts in Scripture? Rich man, poor man. His name was Lazarus. And he was laid at his gate, covered with sores and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. This guy's in a terrible state. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom, and the rich man also died and was buried And now here's the afterlife, verse 23. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. Lazarus was in the place of blessing. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. Isn't that interesting? He had no need of Lazarus in the life here, but he has need of Lazarus in the life hereafter. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things and likewise Lazarus bad things, but now he is being comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great chasm fixed so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. In other words, it's too late. You see, you could be a person who is rich, maybe even rich materially, but if you're not rich toward God, it avails you nothing. And then look over at Matthew chapter 16. Matthew 16 for another teaching of our Lord. This is powerful teaching on the issue of money and finances and what we do with it and our hearts about it. Matthew 16, verse 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Say, so how does that relate to money? Verse 26 For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? What if you just had all of the money in the world and you were very rich materially, but spiritually you were in poverty? Because you weren't willing to give up your riches in exchange for your soul. That may be what's going on in Proverbs 13:7. Someone who's rich on the outside but is not rich on the inside. And so they may have all of the world's goods, but in reality, spiritually, they have nothing. Jesus even said in Matthew chapter 6, Verse one, the words that I quoted a moment ago. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. So when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets. You can see them. I'm going to give some money now. Is everybody watching? I'll give the money if you name the building after me. They want to do that in the synagogues and in the streets, but they're hypocrites so that they may be honored by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving will be in secret and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you Now that's the rich man Maybe according to Proverbs 13:7 he's got all kinds of riches on the outside but on the inside Solomon says he has nothing Well what about the supposedly poor man in Proverbs 13:7b he, he pretends to be financially poor but in reality he doesn't want to part with the great wealth that he has in contrast to the rich man who gives just enough so that he can be looked on by men as spiritually minded the supposed poor man wants to hoard his wealth by acting like he can't even even he can't even rub two pennies together He's acting poor but he's really not a spiritually minded man like he should be like he should be totally dependent upon God for his next meal, regardless of his financial condition, but this guy in truth is loaded with money, loaded with material goods, and he will do anything in his power not to part with it. You see, you could have somebody who really presumes himself to be materially wealthy and yet has nothing, or you could have someone who acts on the outside like he doesn't have anything at all, and maybe he has it but doesn't want to part with it. That's why Paul, by the way, told Timothy these words. And even in this particular first century context, these words would be real and true. There were always people out there who were trying to get rich, always have been, always will be. First Timothy chapter 6 verse 5 constant friction, he says, between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. Just turn on your television, you can see that. People who suppose that by their godliness, by their righteous works, they can bring in the money, and so many of them can. I know one particular televangelist who I heard of even several years ago, it's probably twice or three times that now, who was bringing by his television ministry and by his conglomerate of ministry $80 million a year. Paul says, yes, there are those of depraved mind and deprived of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain, but godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment for we have brought nothing into the world so we cannot take anything out of it either wasn't that rich man needing to hear that you fool your soul is required of you now who alone what you possess you should have realized that you could bring nothing into this world you didn't and you cannot take anything out of it either if we have food and covering with these we shall be content but those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And just as surely as Paul told Timothy that, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 19, These powerful words. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Just like this man who says he's poor, but he has great wealth. He doesn't want to part with his riches, and he'll even try to lie and tell everybody that he doesn't have the cash. Jesus says, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It's hard to say which one of these views is the correct one. But each of them... All three of them could be meditated upon, looked at, and pondered. And whichever view you take, take your pick, I ask you, how are you doing in the handling of your money? Are you presumptuous with it? Are you pretending to be a certain kind of person financially when in truth you're not? Are you greedy for gain, either to make yourself look good or to hoard your money for selfish gain, to keep it all to yourself? Hey, the way we use our money is a great gauge on our relationship to Jesus Christ. For where your money is, there will your treasure be also. Notice Solomon moves to verse 8 of chapter 13 and again pounds us with regard to our financial lives. Notice what he says, the ransom of a man's life is his wealth, but the poor hears no rebuke. Now I confess that I had to meditate a long time on what that might mean, because that's Very strange when you read it initially. What does it mean? The ransom of a man's life is his wealth, but the poor hears no rebuke. Well, it seems to be saying that when a rich man has been caught doing something he should not have done, though because of his wealth, he can pay a ransom or a fee in order to right the situation. In other words, someone has been offended by him. And in order for that situation to be righted, he'll give any amount of money in order to extricate himself from the dilemma. It's not necessarily a blackmail situation. It's merely saying that a rich man has the wherewithal to pay his way out of his problems. Do you know, Satan surmised the same thing about Job In Job 2.4, who was, by the way, a very rich man of his time, one of the richest, in Job 2.4, Satan said, all that a man has, he will give for his life. And I guess in one sense that's true. If a person is in a real dilemma, a real pickle, he has the wherewithal financially, possibly, to extricate himself from the problem. And that seems to be what is indicated here Between how a wealthy man responds to a demand for righting a wrong that he's committed and how a poor man responds to his sin against others, an offense that he's committed. If a rich man needs to pay for a wrong with all his riches, he'll do it. That's the point. He'll find a way to get it done. He'll use his money for his life. If he needs to pay you with all of his money for the sake of saving his life, he'll part with his riches in order to live. But contrast the rich man's way of dealing with this, though, to the poor man's way of dealing with his trouble. The poor man is pictured overall in Proverbs as one who is destitute. He's in desperate need of assistance. Look at Proverbs chapter 14, verse 20, the first part. Proverbs fourteen twenty, The poor is hated even by his neighbor. He's hated by his neighbor. Chapter 19, verse 7. All the brothers of a poor man hate him. How much more do his friends abandon him? This is terribly characteristic of so many who are poor, nobody likes them, nobody cares for them. Proverbs 18:23, the poor man utters supplications, but the rich man answers roughly. The poor man when someone is offended by him and they rebuke him or maybe the word should be in Proverbs 13:8 threaten him when he's threatened, what does he do? It says the poor hears no threat, hears no rebuke. Again, we're not talking here about a bribe or that someone is attempting to extort money from either of these kinds of men. It's contrasting two kinds of responses, two kinds of ways that people respond to threats of payment. One will gladly give what he has that is the rich man, the other has nothing anyway, and so he doesn't even respond to the threat. He can't be dealt with in that way. You can't deal with him like you would a rich man. You say, well, how does this apply to us? Paul Koptak, commentator on Proverbs, says it this way, This verse allows that riches can get one out of trouble. It can get one out of trouble, but only as it reminds us that it is better to hear no threat of trouble at all. In other words, you might be rich and you might be able to buy your way out of trouble, but don't get into trouble in the first place. That's the point. The poor do not have money to buy their way out of legal entanglements and other difficulties, but they may not need to as often as those with money do. End quote. Yes, the point is, don't get in any trouble at all, but if in fact that happens, one man responds this way, another responds a different way. Maybe the emphasis for us should be, regardless of whether you're rich or poor, better not be caught with the entanglements where your money will be demanded of you. And oh, how that is such an entanglement when people get involved in financial dealings and then they get involved in compromises and cutting corners. And if you're one of those who has a little bit of cash stowed away, it could be taken away from you. If you're rich, you might have to pay. And if you're poor, your offense will be exacted probably in some other way. Some other way that you don't want. Verse 9 continues on with this talk of money. Although in an implicit way, it says the light of the righteous rejoices, but the lamp of the wicked goes out. Now I say that this is implicitly a reference to riches and poverty. Because in the Old Testament, the light of a person's lamp symbolized their success and well-being. Often it was spoken of the children of Israel that they had the lamp. They had the light, and it was well with them, or they were successful. And that, of course, included their financial well-being. And when the proverb goes on to say that a righteous man's light shines brightly. Do you see in the New American Standard Bible, there's an alternate translation? The ransom of a man's life is his wealth, but the poor hears no rebuke. The light of the righteous Rejoices, there's that alternate translation, shines brightly. His success, his financial well-being, every aspect of his life is shining brightly. It speaks of a person's endurance in life. Their light rejoicing means that the person is like a light that shines like a steady beam. And you can infer from this, of course, that it includes a person's financial success, financial well-being. I mentioned that there were some Old Testament passages that talked in this sense. Listen to Esther chapter 8. Don't turn there, but just listen. Ex- Esther chapter 8, verses 15 and 16. Listen how to how this is tied together in this passage. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a large crown of gold and a garment of fine linen and purple, and the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. For the Jews there was light and gladness and joy and honor. Do you see how they were honored even with material riches, with the the robes of royalty of blue and white, and a crown of gold and a garment of fine linen and purple? It was tied together. In fact, look in Proverbs chapter 31 at the virtuous woman. There's a sense of that even there in Proverbs 31. This shining light, this beam, is talking also about a financial prosperity. Verse 16, she considers a field and buys it. From her earnings she plants a vineyard She girds herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She senses that her gain is good. Her lamp does not go out at night. That's not just talking about her physical lamp. That's just not talking about working late. That's a euphemism for talking about prosperity, well-being. We know that because Solomon says in the contrast here in chapter 13, verse 9, the lamp of the wicked goes out. And that is definitely characterizing a person who has their endurance, their life, their financial well-being, their success snuffed out like a wick. That's what it's specifically referring to. A person who's characterized as wicked will not have a light that shines brightly. Their joy will be snuffed out like a wick being extinguished. That's the verb used here. The lamp of the wicked is snuffed out. You can see this in chapter 24, verse 20. For there will be no future for the evil man. The lamp of the wicked will be put out. See, that's the euphemism there. Chapter 20, verse 20. He who curses his father or mother, his lamp will go out in time of darkness. And you don't have to turn there, but Job 18, verses 5 and 6. Indeed, the light of the wicked goes out, and the flame of his fire gives no light. See, it's talking about a person who doesn't have financial success, financial well-being in the totality of his life. Because he's a wicked man, his lamp is going to go out. It's going to be extinguished, the wick of his life. But the light of the righteous shines brightly. One who pretends to be rich has nothing. Another pretends to be poor, but has great wealth. And the ransom of a man's life is his wealth. The poor hears no rebuke. The light of the righteous rejoices, shines brightly, but the lamp of the wicked, it goes out. Verse 10. Through insolence comes nothing but strife, but wisdom is with those who receive counsel. This just goes right along. Again, not explicitly talking about wealth, but certainly implied. Someone who is insolent has nothing but strife, the Bible says. You say, what is insolence? That's, a, that's an interesting word that talks about pride on top of pride. It's talking about someone who's proud and who knows they're proud, and who delights in their pride. When someone says that they are proud, but they are insolently proud, it means they're proud and they're very happy about it. They're very cozy in their pride. It's the worst kind of pride. You're proud of what you're proud about. Everyone is told that they must do it the way of the insolent, proud man in his way. Bruce Waltke describes this kind of person, this insolent person. Those who have an exaggerated opinion of their self-importance do not take counsel. With pride denotes the psychological state of an exaggerated opinion of one's importance within society and a refusal to accept one's place within its structure under God. In other words, he says, where there is strife, there is pride. Hubris, the foolish, impertinent component of all kinds of fools, evokes strife as it opposes the proper ordering of society under God according to the norms of morality. You've got a structure. You've got rules within that structure. Whether it's a city, whether it's a community, whether it's a local assembly, whatever it may be, whether it's a government, whether it's a nation, and you have someone who has insolent pride who says, I'm not going to follow the rules. In fact, I'm going to make up my own rules. And when that happens, of course, strife comes. Nothing but strife. And how is that true with those who are going to financially mismanage because of their pride? Have we not seen that in the recent history of all of the are some of the great corporations in America? Just go through the the list of all of those. Have we not just seen even within the confines of Walmart, within our own state recently in the paper, the kinds of pride and arrogance, the kinds of graft, the greed that comes from pride? Enron? Sort of like a domino effect plunging so many of these other corporations. Families destroyed, people imprisoned, and there's nothing so often internally but strife. All kinds of mismanagement, misappropriation of funds, and all kinds of strife along with it. Solomon says, look, my sons, Here's an opportunity for you to see from the very structure of society that through insolence comes nothing but strife. But wisdom is with those who receive counsel. Could it be any clearer? Those who are humble, open to correction, open to criticism, receive what they need in order to be well-ordered in their lives. How hard is it to say I was wrong? I need to be corrected. I need to be rebuked. I need to be reproved. I'll take the wisdom of those who can give me the counsel that I desperately need. And it may not, as I said, be explicit here, but certainly this has to include The issue of money matters. Those who are humble and those who acknowledge the limitations of their financial knowledge will readily receive advice from those who are more mature and have gone through some of their own battles possibly with finances. Our church, thank the Lord, has some key men and women in it, key couples, who are made available privately, confidentially, who can come alongside people who have made a mess of things financially in their home or as individuals. And when our pastors are contacted, often we're able to put together those who are hurting financially with those who could help them, who set them on a right kind of budget, who talk with them, who pray with them, who counsel them regarding their finances. And so often, praise the Lord... People like that are righted in their financial ship. But how often it is true that when we sometimes hook up these people together, when I later check back with those who are our financial counselors, they'll say something like this. They didn't follow through. They didn't keep on with the accountability. And, of course, sometimes what happens is those people come back and say, my financial situation is worse. Could it be that they did not avail themselves of the wisdom in order to receive the counsel that comes along with years of experience, maybe even years of great failure, followed by years of great maturity and strength by those who have gone there, have seen what kind of devastation and destruction, or maybe even those who have never had such. They've always been a model of financial integrity, Able to give their counsel and their wisdom to those who desperately need it? Could it be that through insolent pride comes nothing but strife in a family when there are financial concerns? Do you know that so many people who work with families say that if not number one, right on the heels of number one in marriage battles, divorces, conflicts in a marriage are financial problems? financial irregularities, financial mismanagement, mismanagement, even on the part of both, if not the one in a relationship. But wisdom is with those who receive counsel. How are you doing in the area of your finances? Even as a young person, do you give a certain amount of the money that you receive, however you receive it, to the Lord? When the offering plate is passed... Do you give that money to the Lord? It doesn't matter how much it is. Just give some as an expression of your love for Christ. Do you, do you put money aside for that purpose? Do you give unto the Lord because you know that that's a right thing to do? The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 16.1, Here's what I say to the churches. Here's what I say to you in Corinth. At the first of every week, the Lord's Day, Take some money and give it to the Lord. Use it for His honor and glory. He's blessed you so much. Do you take care of your family? Are you using the resources that you have with what God has given you to take care of them? Are you spending it on your own pleasures? Are you holding your family accountable? doesn't matter if you're not the head of the home, if you're not the man of the house. Do you hold that man accountable? Is he overspending? Now there may be, because of some insolent pride, strife. Maybe this particular section of Proverbs 13 could be used in some way so that they might see that wisdom is with those who receive counsel. And right on the heels of that is verse 11 as we close. Wealth obtained by fraud dwindles but the one who gathers by labor increases it. Oh, that's that's so practical. This completes this second section of Proverbs thirteen. The first, the way to talk and live, and you've obviously figured it out by now, this is the way to spend and live. The way to really spend and live. This is this is hitting us right in the money bags. This is, this is so wonderful for all of us, myself included, to hear and to heed and to obey. The contrast is obvious. Those who obtain wealth by fraudulent means, money received by unsound ways, will see their money dwindle. Oh, you could have a lot. You could have a lot at the beginning, but it's going to dwindle. That's what he tells his sons, does Solomon. By the way, this has the idea of money gained by a puff of air or a vapor. If you do it by fraudulent means, it's like you're going to receive it, but it's like a puff of air. It's like vapor. It's there and then it's gone. It will be there today, but poof, gone tomorrow. And even the word dwindle means a short duration. You're going to have it for a short time. And then it will vanish away. But contrast that with the one who labors for the money he receives. He will be handsomely rewarded. By labor, it will be increased. Couldn't be any clearer. How do you work for your money? Do you work hard for it? Do you labor for it intensely? Or do you attempt to obtain it through fraudulent means? I mean, this proverb really sums up the rest, doesn't it? I mean, all of these verses from 7 to 11, in some way, either explicitly or implicitly, is telling us how we can use our money as a key component of the Christian life. How are you doing in your use of money? There's so much for us here. Let's pray together. And let's ask the Lord to cause us to examine ourselves with regard to our use of the money that He has given us. This is the way to really spend and live. There's, there's no better way. How do you spend and live? Are you living from hand to mouth? If you are, could it be that you're violating one or more of these Proverbs? Are you being blessed financially? Could it be that you're using your money wisely? That you're receiving wisdom? counsel by those around you who use their money wisely? Are you laboring for it? If it's increasing in your life, thank God for that. Thank God for the labor, the strength He gives for you to wake up each day, go to work, depend on the Lord for all of His good gifts. Lord we don't want to be pretenders, pretending either to be rich or poor, pretending to have nothing or to have great wealth. And we don't want to be caught in the trouble for when we are confronted with that trouble we have to pay with our hard-earned money to get out of that dilemma. Or if we're poor and can't pay that way it'll be extracted some other way. Lord, we don't want to get in that trouble at all. we want to shine brightly as righteous men and women not like the wicked where their lamp is snuffed out like a extinguished wick lord don't allow us to be characterized in any way with insolent pride for we know that that causes strife. This is where You say it right in Your Word. What we want to receive, counsel, the wisdom from those who have gone through the battles and who can help us right the ship. Even if we are in financial peril, financial difficulty, let us receive the wisdom from those who have been models and examples to the flock. Let us be humble, swallow our insolent pride, and ask for help. Lord, we pray that You would allow us to labor for our money and receive it that way and not to obtain it by fraud. Because if we do, it will just fly away, dwindle. Lord, allow us to use these Proverbs to our very advantage. To be those who are living these truths out, just like Solomon desired of his sons and we, your sons... May we take to heart tonight this message of how to really spend and live. And may we spend money for Your honor. And may we live with our money in a way that is appropriate and that glorifies You best. Lord, if we have mismanaged our funds or anything material in our lives, we confess, seek your forgiveness and want to start anew and afresh. And Lord, if we need to come to someone and ask for help, may we do so swallowing any insolent pride that may be within us, seeking out the wisdom and the counsel that could help us. We thank You for Your convicting work. And may a message like this change us so that we would live financially in a way that pleases You and shows You where our treasure really is. We want You to know our hearts. And because we know that You know it by what we do and how we spend and even with your x-ray omniscience you see right into our heart and you see what our life is like in the money area. May we confess and seek anew and afresh your work in us in this key area of life. And we'll praise you forever for helping us and prompting us to see this as an area not of weakness, but of strength. Thank you for this blessed day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.